This podcast is part of the Bomb Pod Media Network. Mysterious phone calls from the dead make for excellent horror movie plots, but this eerie phenomenon also happens in real life. Many stories of unexplained phone calls show that they're not just the result of grief-stricken imaginings. Although people try to explain these odd occurrences by blaming malfunctioning cell phone technology, reports of phantom phone calls go back to at least 1967. Charles E. Peck's Metrolink death is one of the most prominent and creepy stories about phone calls from dead people. Peck was killed instantly in a horrible 2008 Metrolink commercial train accident, but before anyone knew he was dead, his family members received 35 calls from his phone for several hours following the disaster. Whether it was due to phone damage or the train rider reaching out from beyond, we may never know. But it's nice to believe that even those who have passed are only a phone call away. I'm Darren Marlar, and this is Weird Darkness. Welcome, weirdos. This is Weird Darkness. Here you'll find stories of the paranormal, supernatural, mysterious, macabre, unsolved, and unexplained. If you have a dark tale to tell, you can share it with me at WeirdDarkness.com and I might use it in a future episode. If you are new here, be sure to subscribe to the podcast so you don't miss future programs. And if you like what you hear and you want to hear even more, I'm constantly posting new episodes exclusively for patrons, and you can learn more and become a patron by clicking the link in the show notes, or visit WeirdDarkness.com and click on Become a Patron. Coming up in this episode… An 11-year-old boy experiences the extraterrestrial in his own backyard. Floating white mist pink orbs, ghosts, and more, and they all reside in Fiddletown, California. Charles E. Peck was killed instantly in a horrible 2008 Metrolink commercial train accident, but before anyone knew he was dead, his family members received 35 calls from his phone for several hours following the disaster. A museum has hung a chair from the ceiling specifically to keep people from sitting in it. Not because they are afraid it will break, but because they are afraid the chair will murder you. 
plus another entry in my new Dark Chapters series, where I read an entire chapter of a book to tempt your taste buds. Today I'll be sharing a story called Pins and Needles by Faith Marlowe from the book Black Magic, a Women of Urban Fantasy production on Kindle. You can find a link to the book in the show notes. Now, bolt your doors, lock your windows, turn off your lights, and come with me into the weird darkness. Although rescue teams were excited because the phone calls might mean that Charles Peck was still alive, that wasn't the case. They discovered Peck's body in the train wreckage an hour after the last phone call was placed. Peck's fiance, Andrea Katz, recalled, Rescuers were so excited. They had this incredible adrenaline rush and thought that they could possibly find another survivor. We gave them a description and they spent the next couple of hours looking for him. They did end up finding him and they said that he died immediately on impact and there was no way he could have been calling us. The coroner was unable to find signs that Peck had survived for any amount of time after the crash, confirming the calls were not made while he was still alive. Andrea Katz heard about the crash on the radio as she was driving to pick up Peck from the train station and was relieved when she received a call from his phone. Other friends and family members of Katz were in the same position. After the crash, Peck's phone placed calls to his son, sister, brother, and stepmother. In all, about 35 calls were made during the 11 hours that followed the deadly accident. The final call from Peck's phone came at 3.28 a.m., about one hour before his body was found. At first, Peck's loved ones were excited when they saw his name pop up on their phone screens. As the calls continued, they had hope that he was still alive. Unfortunately, they were unable to actually talk to him. All they heard when they answered his calls was static. When they tried calling him back, Peck's phone went straight to voicemail. Andrea Katz used the opportunity to communicate with her fiancé and to let him know she was with him no matter what. We were yelling in the phone, hang in there, baby, we're going to get you out, you're going to be okay, she remembers. Other people who claim to have received phone calls from the dead also report hearing static or a voice that seemed very faint and far away. Before rescue workers discovered Charles Peck's body in the wreckage, they had no reason not to believe the calls placed to his family meant he was still alive. As it became clear they probably weren't going to find any survivors in the crash, their rescue efforts turned into a mission to recover bodies. But when yet another call came from Peck's phone, they decided to trace it to find his location. Rescuers returned to searching the first car, hoping to find him alive and possibly trapped under some rubble. Unfortunately, they discovered his body and knew that he died on impact. Police never revealed if Peck's phone was ever found. Charles Peck was a passenger on a Metrolink commuter train traveling through the San Fernando Valley in California on September 12, 2008. It collided headfirst with a Union Pacific freight train at 83 miles per hour and the conductor failed to stop at a red light. 
the impact was devastating, and of the 225 people aboard the Metrolink, at least 25 died and more than 100 were injured. The engineer sitting at the front of the train was killed instantly as well. The freight train was carrying only three crew members, but it was demolished in the accident. The disaster later became known as the Chatsworth train crash and is still considered the worst commuter train accident in the history of California. Investigators believe the conductor of the Metrolink train was responsible for the crash after he failed to stop at a red light. The commuter train was running on the same track as the freight train and was directly in its path. It's likely that the conductor was distracted by his phone and was too busy texting to notice his mistake. After the disaster, two teens came forward and admitted they were communicating with the conductor immediately before the crash. They were interested in his job and were texting him questions about his work. The last text sent from the conductor's phone happened 22 seconds before the impact. 49-year-old Charles Peck worked in customer service for Delta Airlines. He was considering leaving his job at Salt Lake City International Airport for a job at Van Nuys Airport in Los Angeles to be closer to his fiancée, Andrea Katz. Although they were ready to get married, the fact that they didn't live in the same state was an issue for the couple. On his way back from the interview, the disaster occurred. Katz was on her way to pick him up from the train station when she heard news of the accident on the radio. Peck had three children from a previous marriage, one of whom was on his afterlife phone call list. Anyone who has ever butt-dialed a number knows it's possible to make a phone call accidentally. Perhaps an object was sitting on top of Peck's phone, causing it to make random calls. The phone was most likely severely damaged during the disaster, so it may have malfunctioned. Peck's broken phone may have called his speed dial list. When this story was posted on Reddit, several users shared their own creepy stories of malfunctioning phones and posted eerie phone activity stories from online forums. The possibility that Peck's phone suffered some other technical issue should not be overlooked. Although rescue workers were able to locate Charles Peck's body successfully, his phone was never discovered. It's possible that it was completely destroyed in the disaster or damaged to the point of malfunctioning, but why it made calls to several of the people Peck was closest to, we may never know. Perhaps he was reaching out to tell his loved ones not to worry. Maybe he took it with him into the afterlife, like ghosts who are seen in the clothes they were wearing when they died. Since the rescue team was able to trace the calls to locate his body, maybe Peck was simply leading them to it. No one will ever know for sure, so this story may forever remain a mystery. Intrigued by the many stories of people receiving phone calls from the dead, psychic investigators D. Scott Rogo and Raymond Bayless did research and published a book about their findings in 1979. By presenting several cases with documented evidence, the two men discovered there were at least three categories of phantom calls. Their research included those who received phone calls from people they didn't know died, people who called and spoke with others who had already died, or, in a few rare cases, a deceased person reached out to them through another person who was living. 
Apparently, dead people making phone calls is not uncommon. It's also interesting to note this study took place before many people owned cell phones, so many modern technical malfunctions can be ruled out. While some people have reported seeing the name or number of a dead acquaintance appear on their caller ID, others claim to have spoken to someone they later discover passed away before the call was made. Crystal S. shared, I was at my mom's house, and I was calling a friend who lived nearby. She was at her cousin's house, so I looked up the number in the phone book. It was the only Owens in the phone book, so I knew it was my friend's cousin's number. I called, and it didn't even ring, but an old lady answered. She said, hello. I asked, is Amelia there? Amelia is my friend, Jessica's cousin. The old lady said, no, dear, Amelia isn't here. I should be expecting her any minute now. So I thought nothing of it and hung up. I told Jessica about it, and she said, Amelia's grandma is dead. And we were there all day long. We were sitting right by the phone. It never rang all day. Mary B. remembers, I made a sales call to Pennsylvania. It started just like any other call. Yes, I need to speak to Mr. or Mrs. B. The woman identified herself as Mrs. B., and I continued on with the normal sales call. She seemed very interested and asked a lot of questions, but when I came to the decision-making part, she quickly stopped me, insisting that I had to talk to her husband. Her objections were the same every time that I attempted to close. She also quickly pointed out that, since his retirement, he spent a great deal of time fishing and was not easy to get in touch with and it would be best to try early in the morning before he left for his favorite hobby. On the callback, the husband did answer the phone. I introduced myself in the normal fashion and explained that I'd been talking to his wife the previous day and she had suggested that I speak to him. You can imagine the shock and horror when he stated to me, distraught, Lady, I don't know who you were talking to, but my wife died and I'm not in any mood to speak to anyone and with that, he quickly hung up the phone. People who have passed on aren't limited to phone calls or hauntings in the modern age. They often use email and social media sites such as Facebook to contact their loved ones. For instance, Jack Fries died unexpectedly from a heart arrhythmia only to contact his friends through email six months later. Fries's friends reported emails sent from his account that included details from some of their last conversations. One friend tried replying but never received a response. People sometimes claim their dead friends have liked their posts on Facebook or sent them messages, like the ones a girl named Emily allegedly sent to her boyfriend two years after her death. This is my first time submitting something like this, let alone telling this story. There are only a few people that have heard this story, mostly due to me being afraid of being thought of as crazy or people not believing that this story is true. In the early 90s, when I was about 11 years old, I lived in Gulfport, Mississippi. On one particular night, my parents and I were returning home, roughly 
6 p.m. from having dinner at one of the recently developed casinos. Once home, Mom and Dad headed inside while I decided to play outside a bit. As I was pointlessly hitting a tree with a stick, as most boys do, I heard a humming sound behind me. I turned around to see where the sound was coming from and I noticed something in the sky. As I focused my eyes in the dark, I froze in terror as I realized it was some sort of aircraft hovering maybe 50 feet directly over my house. It was oval in shape, with lights that mimicked chasing lights, the type you get for a Christmas tree, that started on each end of the oval, then met on either side in the middle, and then back again. The ship's underside was shiny black, but that only reflected light, not images. It was completely still in the sky, like it was observing me. I didn't know what to do. If I ran away, it was sure to catch up with me, and the other option was I would have to run toward the ship to get to my house, which was the closest shelter. Adrenaline kicked in, and I ran toward the house as fast as I could, all the while keeping an eye on the ship. I burst in the door, turned around, and locked it. I looked around and my parents were both watching TV, eyes glued to it. They didn't even raise their gaze when I came in. This was not like them at all. I frantically explained to them the situation outside, but still, neither of them lifted their gaze from the TV, just brushing it off as it was probably an airplane or something. This was very odd behavior from my parents. It was like they were hypnotized or something. My parents were very attentive, loving people, and normally in any other situation, especially if they saw I was visually distressed, they would be concerned about my well-being and help me. Ten minutes later, I was able to convince my father to step outside, but of course it was long gone by then. Years later, in 2006, I was having a casual conversation with the father of my then-girlfriend about science fiction and he mentioned that he witnessed a UFO once when he was young, and ever since, he was obsessed with stories of encounters. So this gave me an opportunity to share my story. At the end of my story, he mentioned that there were many similar UFO sightings in the South in the early 90s of the same type of craft that I witnessed. Has anyone heard or experienced something similar to this? Something draws me and my wife, Deanna Jackseen Stinson, to Fiddletown. We received all kinds of reports of haunted activity at Fiddletown, but you're probably wondering where is Fiddletown? Fiddletown is about 45 minutes away from Sacramento, close to the town of Jackson, California. Fiddletown was settled in 1849 by Missourians who came to California because of the California Gold Rush. Fiddletown had its share of mining camps and trading centers. In the 1860 census, the Chinese community in Fiddletown was up to 2,000. Fiddletown got its name because of Dry Creek. Dry Creek would run dry in the summer months, and the miners basically didn't work in the summertime because they had no water from Dry Creek. People say they just fiddled around. Henceforth was born the town's name. A local citizen was embarrassed by the name and lobbied to have the name changed to Oletta 
the name of his daughter in 1878. The residents didn't have it and changed the name back to Fiddletown. Fiddletown has one notable resident. His name is Leon Whitey Thompson. Whitey was a former inmate at Alcatraz and an author. Nice place to stop at is the Chukie Store Museum, State Registered Landmark Number 35. This museum was once a herb store during the gold rush. It's now a museum. The store was built by Yi Fong Chang. Yi received his 15 minutes of fame for saving the life of then-governor Leland Stanford's wife from pulmonary disorder. Mr. Chang saved her with his herbs. Now that you got the history of Fiddletown, let's talk about the paranormal activity that happens in this historic town. Whitney Collins of Jackson, California says that while walking through the town with her husband, she came upon a floating white mist. The floating white mist followed them for about 300 yards. If they turned a corner, the mist would turn a corner. Before it vanished, it actually tapped Whitney on her shoulder. Other visitors have seen pinkish type of orbs going in and out of bushes. Matt Tyler of Copperopolis says that his grandmother once told him they are pinkies. Matt's grandmother says that the pinkies, a type of fairy, was brought to Missouri and finally to Fiddletown by August Templer, a miner. August captured the pinkies in Ireland, and it is said if you capture a pinky, it'll bring you good luck. August was able to gain a considerable amount of wealth by mining gold. After he hit an amount that he felt comfortable with, he then retreated back to Missouri. Some residents have made claim that they've seen the ghost of Leon Whitey Thompson walking around in the open fields. Whitey looks like he's looking for something in the fields and, at times, looks frustrated. While watching Whitey, he will dissipate into nothingness. Meg Batista claims that during fall, people will claim that they see a large black dog. It looks similar to a Rottweiler. The big black dog will bark and sometimes howl. Meg, while visiting, says that on one particular night, she was scared to death because this big black dog was viciously chasing her son. When her son fell down and he thought the dog was going to be on top of him, he looked up and there was no dog around. Some residents claim that they hear muffled, disembodied voices around the Chu Key Store Museum. Some other residents claim that they had their hair pulled and even have been touched at the Chu Key Store Museum. One resident said that while walking around the building, an entity pushed him. He could feel the entity's hands on his chest. As he continued to walk, it pushed him again, but this time he felt one hand on his shoulder pushing. The third and final push was a hand to the face. He thinks he may have provoked a spirit because he was complaining to his wife about driving to Fiddletown and that he was not impressed by the Chu Key Store Museum. He feels he may have insulted the ghost that hangs out at the museum. He even says it could have been the ghost of Yi Feng Chang. The hunter, who does not want to be identified, claims that while hunting squirrels near North Fork Dry Creek near Fiddletown, he came across what he thought was a white mist. He just got done cursing a bit because he missed his shot on two squirrels. The white mist approached him and then disappeared. After the white mist disappeared, he was attacked by flies. 
Flies started landing on his arms, neck, face, and head. It got so bad he ran away from the area and jumped into his truck. The flies came through an open window and some of the flies remained in his truck as he drove away. With all the reports of haunted activity in Fiddletown, my wife and I will be investigating Fiddletown and interviewing some of the residents, and we'll see for ourselves what is truly going on in Fiddletown, California. If you visit the small jewel of a museum in Thirsk, you'll see the rather strange sight of an oak chair hung from the ceiling in one of the display areas. The chair was suspended at the explicit request of its owner to prevent anyone from ever sitting on it, including maintenance and cleaners. The museum has never broken its promise in over 30 years, despite numerous requests and even the threat of legal action. Local legend has it that the chair belonged to Thomas Busby, a thug, thief, and drunkard who lived in North Yorkshire in the latter part of the 1600s. Busby married Elizabeth, the daughter of a small-time petty crook, Daniel Awady, who lived near the village of Kirby Whisk. Awady had purchased a farm after moving to the area from Leeds. His house, which he called Danity Hall, was ideal for Awady enabling him to continue with his illegal coining activities in relative seclusion. It was even reported that Awadi had built within the house a hidden chamber which was connected to the cellar via a secret passageway. Busby, who was also the original owner of an inn near Sandhutton and just three miles from Danity Hall, became Awadi's partner in crime. The details of what happened that fatal last day of Awadi's life are vague. Awadi and Busby may have argued earlier that day, but over what is not known. It could have been something to do with Elizabeth, the coining business, or almost anything else. Their relationship was known to be far from harmonious, with Busby often in a foul mood with Awadi for some reason or another. What is clear is that later that day, a drunken and volatile Busby returned to his inn only to find Awadi waiting for him threatening to take Elizabeth home with him. Busby's mood only blackened when he saw Awadi sitting in his favorite chair. Whatever their second argument of the day was over, Busby forcibly removed Awadi from the chair and threw him out. That night, Busby, still seething, grabbed a hammer, stormed over to Danity Hall, and bludgeoned Awadi to death. Busby then tried to hide his handiwork in the woods. Concern over Awadi's sudden disappearance led to a local search of the area being made. On finding the body, Busby was arrested at the inn and charged with murder. In the summer of 1702, Busby was tried and sentenced to death for murder. His punishment was to be gibbeted. In other words, hung from a gibbet, his body dipped in tar and his remains displayed on a stoop or post attached to the gibbet in full view of his inn. The inn was soon after renamed the Busby Stoop Inn, a name which it retained until it closed in 2012. It is here that the story veers away from historical certainty 
and moves into the realms of local folklore. One version recounts how Busby was granted his last wish, which was to have a final drink at his own inn and sit in his favorite chair. On leaving the inn to make his final journey to the execution site, Busby cursed the chair, declaring that death would come shortly to anyone who sat in it. Another version tells how Busby drunkenly shouted out the curse whilst being taken to the gibbet to be hung. Whichever way you look at it, Busby was determined that even from beyond the grave, he would never allow anyone to enjoy sitting in his beloved chair. Busby's spirit was believed to have haunted his old pub as well as the area where he was gibbeted, but it's his precious chair, the focus of his curse, which became irrevocably linked to his revengeful spirit. According to local legend, this seemingly innocuous piece of furniture has been responsible for more deaths than most serial killers. One estimate puts the number of its victims at over 60. The first reported death alleged to be associated with the death chair is that of a chimney sweep who, along with a friend, sat in the chair whilst having a drink one evening in 1894. The sweep never made it home that night. Being completely inebriated, he laid down on the road to sleep. The next morning, his body was found hanging from the post next to the gibbet. His death was ruled as a suicide, but in 1914, the friend with whom the chimney sweep had spent his last hours with admitted on his deathbed to having robbed and murdered his friend. During the Second World War, the pub became a popular drinking spot with RCAF airmen. The airmen would goad each other to sit in the chair. Those that took up the challenge never returned from their missions. In 1968, a couple of years before Tony Ershaw took over the running of the pub, he overheard two airmen dare each other to sit in the chair. They both did. Returning to the airfield, their car left the road and crashed into a tree. They both died on the way to the hospital. Through the early 1970s, the chair seemed to claim a number of victims, including a cleaning lady who was diagnosed with a brain tumor after knocking into the chair, a number of cyclists and motorcyclists who suffered fatal road accidents, a hitchhiker who was run over after having spent two nights at the pub, and a local man who died of a heart attack shortly after sitting in the condemned chair. A group of builders, having a drink at the pub, cajoled the youngest of their group into sitting on the chair. Back at the site, the man fell through the roof of the building and landed on the concrete ground below. This death proved to be the final straw for Earnshaw, and he banished the chair to the cellar. A delivery man from the brewery was in the cellar one day when he decided to try out the chair. He commented to Earnshaw that it was far too comfortable to be left down there. He was killed shortly afterwards when his van went off the road. Soon after, Earnshaw must have decided that the chair, despite being a profitable tourist attraction, was too dangerous to keep any longer. In 1978, Earnshaw donated it to the Thirsk Museum. There are so many questions that have been left unanswered and probably are unanswerable. Did Busby really commit murder over a chair? Could any person truly hold such deep affection for a carved piece of wood? 
Is Busby's revengeful and jealous spirit still attacking anyone who dares sit in his seat? Or was the murder over something far more important, something which we will never know about? Is the chair really haunted, or was it a money-making gimmick? Is the chair just really an extremely unlucky piece of furniture? Is this chair really the same chair that Busby fought over? Many people believe the deaths were just an unlucky coincidence. Another explanation could be simply that the majority of those brave enough to defy the curse were just risk-takers prepared to push their luck. It is interesting how many of the deaths happened on roads and thousands of men of Bomber Command never returned from sorties and were simply unlucky. On one hand, it would be intriguing to test the chair to see if the legend about this unusual haunting is really true. But on the other hand, sometimes it's better not to know. For this episode's dark chapters, I'll be sharing a story called Pins and Needles by Faith Barlow from the book Black Magic, a Women of Urban Fantasy production on Kindle. You can find a link to the book in the show notes. Discover a myriad of monsters from the Women of Urban Fantasy and authors of CHBB Publishing. Demons, vampires, ghosts, and ghouls, nothing is off-limits in Black Magic. Lose yourself in these offerings and let your mind be taken into a world of macabre fantasy. Stories by award-winning and Amazon best-selling authors, including USA Today best-selling authors Rue Volley and S.J. Davis, Faith Marlowe, Lily Lucchesi, Elaine White, Sarah Hall, Nicole Thorne, along with poetry from Elizabeth A. Lance and Lorencia Hoffman. Proceeds from the Black Magic Urban Fantasy Anthology will be donated to Meals on Wheels. And now, Pins and Needles by Faith Marlowe. Senator Tom Bateman quickly slipped through the crowd of roaring constituents. They lined up early, some there in support but for the most part in protest. He didn't mind it, had expected it. Someone had to make the tough choices, say what nobody else had the guts to say. He was not afraid to be that man. Flashing cameras, screaming faces, and flapping signs surrounded him. The crowd had pressed in on the fencing that was supposed to keep them back, keep them in their place, but of course that had been ignored. The security suit in front of him held tight to his forearm, essentially dragging him through the increasingly constrictive crowd. He was being heckled, booed, and pushed. The agent placed his finger to his ear, pushing in the earbud further in to hear above the now almost riotous crowd. He looked back and forth up the street, the faces of the raging crowd reflected in his aviator sunglasses. "'Where's the car?' Senator Bateman shouted, shaking the suit's arm. He could feel his blood pressure rising his cheeks getting red. Perspiration dampened the back of his shirt and underarms. He had to make a conscious effort to maintain his calm. 
the last thing he needed was for the press to snap a picture of him that reflected anything than cool confidence. Just then, a splatter of spit hit the left side of his face. He gasped in disgust and shock. He reflexively attempted to wipe his face, but the security detail had no intention of letting go of his arm, his other hand fiercely clutching his attaché case. He desperately tried to wipe his cheek on the shoulder of his jacket, leaving behind wide streaks of the makeup that had been applied before his television interview. "'Where's the damn car?' "'It'll be here any moment, sir,' the suit stated with military precision and detachment. He was a man on a mission. "'Senator, please allow me to assist you.' A soft, feminine voice cut through the noise. He turned his head to follow the voice as the rest of the clamor seemed to quiet. The young woman, no older than her early thirties, smiled quietly at him. She was unaffected by the screaming crowd that pushed and shoved behind her. She was as serene as a monk at meditation, and Tom found it impossible to pull his eyes away from her perfect ebony complexion, full glossy lips, or the mass of dark braids that framed her face. Slowly and carefully, she wiped the spit and phlegm from Tom's face and jacket with an embroidered handkerchief before tucking it into his breast pocket. "'This way, sir,' security detail instructed, yanking him toward the limo. Tom staggered away with his head still turned behind him, the starched collar of his shirt digging into his droopy double chin pushing up his jowl. The whole moment lasted no longer than fifteen seconds, but it had felt like a five-minute escape to Tom. The mystery woman disappeared into the churning masses just before security pushed his head down to pass through the car door. As they sped away from the chaos, he reached for the silk pocket square in his small breast pocket. Surprisingly, he discovered that only the mysterious woman's delicate handkerchief remained. Tom slid out of bed, drawn to the kitchen by the savory scent of breakfast. He knew it would be sitting on the table waiting for him. Nana, his housekeeper, knew he liked his scrambled eggs just a little shy of firm, bacon crispy, and his orange juice in the small tumblers with one piece of ice. To his happy surprise, Nana had also made pancakes this morning. He shuffled to the table and sat down with a huff, tucking the linen napkin into his collar. His wife Meredith was not an early riser, so she would eat later. He slurped down his double-portion breakfast, careful that the syrup did not drip on his mountainous belly in transit from his plate to his mouth. He retreated to his office with a stuffed stomach and a cup of coffee, giving no concern to the trail of spills that he left behind him on the floor. He paid good money for housekeeping to take care of such things. Tom leaned back in his leather office chair and clicked on the television to his favorite news channel, peeking at the screen from behind the morning paper. He wanted to see what was being said about his interview. It had been a highly advertised event, his first public appearance in three months since the changes included in the bill he had pushed so hard for had gone into effect. The Bateman Buster had not been popular amongst certain members of society, but that was to be expected. It was a no-frills, unapologetic budget cut. Nobody impacted by these sweeping policies would have liked it, but that's life. It was all for the greater good. And by greater, 
he was never referring to the majority. The greater, in Tom's eyes, were those who never depended on those programs in the first place. It was well past time for people to start taking care of their own problems and stop looking for a handout. Flipping through the channels, one station supported him, but most vilified his interview. He heard references comparing him to Hitler and Stalin. They said he was evil, hateful, out to get the little man. He hated the poor and championed the rich. He brushed it off as propaganda. Flipping through the paper, he finally spotted something that riled him. A caricature was drawn of him at the filming of his interview. His plump face, purposely given a pig-like appearance, was colored an unnaturally bronze skin tone and sweat raced down cheeks that were nothing but hog jowls. They made him look like a cross between a melting snowman and Jabba the Hutt. He laughed it off, knowing the artist who drew it was probably just upset because his free lunch had been taken away. As Tom read his email, gloating at the numerous messages congratulating him and applauding his outstanding job, his stomach rolled. He grimaced, the knot in his stomach growing larger, chest tight. With a frown, he beat on his chest and a rolling burp erupted, decreasing the pressure. He wondered if Nana had prepared his food differently because the longer he sat, the worse he felt. Cold sweat broke out across the back of his neck and forehead. Mouth watered. Scrolling through his emails made him feel motion sick, causing his head to swoon and his stomach knotted tighter. A shiver rippled up his spine. Hot spit drained down his throat. Before he had a chance to grab the wastebasket or look away, Tom projectile vomited onto his desk. His ribs ached as wave after wave of acidic chunks and fluid spewed out of him, more than he could ever have imagined possible. His laptop and everything on his desk were completely coated. He thought he would suffocate before he was able to get a breath. Finally, the reflux subsided, and he collapsed into his chair, covered in his own mess, but too winded to do anything about it yet. Meredith walked into the office, still wearing her nightgown, sleep in her eyes, and a shot of whiskey on the rocks already in her hand. Rough night? She looked at him in disgust before returning to her bedroom. Six hours later, Tom had still not recovered from his morning. He laid in bed, his bedroom dark and silent. If he opened his eyes, the entire room seemed to ride on an ocean wave. He could still feel it with his eyes closed, but at least he could not see it. He dared not roll over or even turn his head. Eating or drinking was not an option he wanted to entertain. Since his ordeal, the only thing that had passed his lips was enough water to brush his teeth before he showered. He had thrown his pajamas in the trash. He would never want to eat pancakes again. Unable to ignore his bladder any longer, he drug himself to the end-suite bathroom. He flipped the switch, and the harsh light overwhelmed his eyes. He squinted hard, his watery vision struggling to focus on his reflection. Leaning close to the mirror, he barely recognized the man looking back at him. His complexion was ashy, eyes hollowed by dark circles that stretched to his cheekbones. His lips were cracked. He knew he'd been sick all day, but he looked like someone with a disease, not a 24-hour stomach bug. If he didn't get some fluids down soon, he would have to go to the hospital. 
an inconvenience to say the least, but if he did have to stay overnight, he would receive the best level of service and care. Private room, personalized menu, anything the staff could do to make his stay more comfortable would be available. It was just another perk of being a public servant. Having finished his business, Tom shuffled back to bed. He didn't have the heart or the energy to do anything else. The last thing he remembered was the back of his head touching the cool Egyptian cotton pillowcase before he passed out. Tom knew he was not experiencing reality. The rational part of his mind that still held its ground reminded him that the interview had been the night before, but despite this knowledge he could still feel the hot breath of the angry mob. So far, as every one of his senses were concerned, he was there, in that moment, waiting on the car. True to life, he could feel tension tightening in his chest, and a sneak attack of spit landed on his face. I wonder if I caught something, his rational mind pondered. Then he remembered her, the enchanting young woman that had come to his rescue. He heard her voice, melodic as a harp. Her baby blue dress contrasted perfectly against her dark skin, glowing like a heavenly creature. Again she asked to assist him, and he felt her gentle touch wipe the filth from his face and jacket. She smiled and the world around him stopped once again. He wanted to speak, but he was lost for words. Then, without warning, the enchanting woman's face of serenity contorted. She opened her mouth, now three times larger than it should be, and Tom knew he was staring down into the deepest pit of hell. She belched and vomited the foulest of substances, nothing a living being could create. It was in his eyes, soaking into his shirt, in his mouth, everything that could rot, any foul fluid a human body could produce, half-digested food, pus, things he could not comprehend were pouring over him by the gallon until he was saturated. He feverishly wiped his eyes, sputtered and gagged, before looking back to the angel that had just revealed herself to be a demon. She was just as perfect, just as peaceful as she had been when he truly met her, but now a sinister smile curled her lips on one side. Get ready, Tommy. I'm just getting started. She hissed and grabbed two handfuls of her braids. She yanked them from her head, tearing bits of her scalp away, and laughed as a trickle of blood crawled down her face. Senator Bateman woke with a start, disoriented. He didn't know if he'd been asleep for two hours or two days. He reflexively wiped at his face, but found nothing but a thin mist of perspiration. Finally able to focus, he looked at the alarm clock on the nightstand. 6.37 in the morning. He'd not held down a sip of water or a bite of food in almost 24 hours, and he was certainly feeling it. His throat was so dry that he choked trying to clear it. Shambling back to the bathroom was still as far as he dared to venture. Normally he would call for Nana and instruct her to bring him a bottle of water, maybe some toast or fruit to ease his stomach back into eating. For now, he was content with sticking his head under the tap for a few test sips. Warming the water, he allowed it to puddle in his hands before washing his face. The heat soaked into his eyes, aching in a good way. 
He dried his face with the fresh, plush towel from the rack, rubbing the back of his neck with the moisture that remained. Returning it to the rack, he paused and took it back for a closer inspection. He pulled one silver hair from the threads, then another. Holding it closer to his eyes, he saw it was covered. He ran his fingers over his scalp and inspected his hands. His hair laced between his fingers like spider webs. The more he brushed, the more fell out. Tom Bateman gasped as he stared in the mirror. He looked like a cancer patient suffering the side effects of chemotherapy. His thick silver hair that had always styled perfectly without effort was now straggly and limp. He could see his scalp. That was the final straw. Tom grabbed his housecoat from the hook on the back of the door and found his slippers by the bed. Nana! He called through the house, hoping his hired help would be able to hear him. After a few moments, he decided she was out of earshot. Meredith! He cried out to his wife, waddling out of his bedroom, leaning against the wall. Meredith, where's Nana? The house was silent. He could not imagine where they could be so early. He'd not known of his wife waking up before 11 in the morning in the last 15 years. Now that it was evident that he was getting no help at home, he decided to take matters into his own hands. He plodded back to the bedroom and grabbed his cell phone from the dresser. Good morning, Senator. How may I help you? His usual driver's attentive voice answered. Get here as soon as possible. I need to see a doctor. Call the hospital on your way over and let them know our ETA. I don't want to wait. Yes, sir. I'll be there in 15 minutes. Relaxing in the hospital room, with the lights dimmed and soaking up intravenous fluids, provided Tom with the peace of mind he needed to rest and heal. Whatever was going on with him, the doctors would figure it out. He'd been given medications to combat the nausea and cold aches that rolled up and down his body. He'd been feverish when he came in, obvious by the hallucination nightmare he'd suffered. Now, getting the care he needed, he was certain the worst was behind him. He leaned back into the pillows to rest his eyes. Phew, you scared me! Tom jerked, suddenly realizing a nurse was standing beside his bed. She had her back turned to him, reading his chart. He resettled himself, finding comfort in the chemical cloud he'd been administered. You should knock before walking in a patient's room. Is bedside manner not being taught in nursing school these days? Forgive me, Mr. Bateman, I did not intend to scare you. Tom smirked, pleased that she had accepted his scolding with a well-worded apology. She had a relaxing tone to her voice, comforting, familiar. At that moment, a sinking feeling settled over him, chilled him to his core. He did recognize that voice. Terror's icy grasp clenched around his heart and threatened to squeeze the life from it. He didn't want to see, but he had to look. The woman from the crowd, the woman from the nightmare, stood by his bed in the flesh. She was wearing scrubs and held a small plastic cup in her hands, smiling that same crooked smile. She looked like a porcelain doll that had taken on a life of its own, fearfully perfect. Her braids were swept up into a knot, but there was no denying it was her. Who are you? How did you get in here? He babbled, pushing himself away from her. The bed rail stopped him from spilling off the side. What do you want? 
Where do you think you're going, Tommy? She whispered, grabbing him by the throat and holding him in place with one hand. He struggled against the pressure, astonished and terrified that this petite woman possessed such strength. He was twice her size. His face filled with blood as his oxygen was cut off. She held the cup in front of him, rattling a single red pill against its sides and waited. He held his breath as long as he could, but reflex took over and he gasped. She dropped the pill in and covered his mouth and nose with her other hand as he flailed, scratched, and kicked. I told you, Tom, I'm just getting started. Tom could feel the pill dissolving on his tongue, eating into his flesh and the insides of his mouth like acid. Foam that smelled of melted electric wiring bubbled out from between his lips and ran between her fingers and down his throat. Searing pain and lack of oxygen darkened his vision, her face the only thing visible at the end of the tunnel. He was doomed. She would not stop until he was dead. When Tom woke from his suffocation blackout, he was still in the hospital. Everything was as he remembered, save the absence of his diabolical angelic nurse. He refused to stay there another moment, not with that homicidal witch on staff. He hastily began to pull the girth of his body from the bed, wrapped so thoroughly in his sheets and the sides of his open back gown that it required more effort than he had expected to get into a sitting position. He was still tethered to the bed by his IV line. Without a second thought, he started to peel the tape from his elbow bend and pulled the catheter from his arm. He just had to get some clothes on and he was gone. He'd call his driver from the street if he had to. Senator, what are you doing? Another nurse asked, dropping his dinner tray as she rushed to him. She attempted to get him back in bed, but he was having none of it. I'm not staying here another minute. I know who works here. She's crazy, he exclaimed while pulling his pajama pants on under his gown. That crazy witch will kill me if I stay here. Are you in on it? You probably are. Mr. Bateman, I've been the only nurse caring for you since you arrived. No, there was another nurse. I've seen her before. She made me swallow a pill. She's trying to kill me. Sir, you should get back in bed. You are not well. I'll never get well if I stay here, Tom said flatly, putting his house coat on over his hospital gown. Tom pushed past the confused woman, stepping over his spilled dinner as he exited. She ran to the nurse's station and informed security that Senator Bateman was intent on leaving the hospital. Moving faster than a man of his size and deteriorating health should be capable of, Tom hit the emergency door at the end of the hall and disappeared into the night to the sound of pleading nurses and screaming security alarms. Senator Tom Bateman woke on a park bench, not quite sure how he had gotten there. He was chilled, housecoat was damp from the fallen dew. He slowly sat up and tried to swallow but was met with stinging dryness. He rolled his tongue around in his mouth and shivered in pain. He could feel countless sores, crevices burned into his flesh from the pill that nightmarish woman had force-fed him. He was no longer sure if she was real or a figment of his imagination, or both. He stared blankly as the occasional jogger or stroller pushing mom passed by, pretending they didn't notice him. He didn't see them either. He was lost in confusion desperate to make sense of his situation. How did this happen? Why? 
He didn't know who this woman was, but he was certain she was hell-bent on his death. Before two days ago, he never saw her before, still didn't know her name or have any way to identify her. He was now convinced that she was not on staff at the hospital but had somehow known he was going to be there, put on some scrubs, and blended right in. Tom's entire body shivered with cold and pain. The medication keeping his symptoms at bay had run their course. Even though he had just woke up, he was still exhausted. He checked his house coat pocket for the 20th time, but his cell phone was still not in it. He must have left it in his room, merely assuming it was in his pocket as he made his hasty escape. The only comfort he had now was the warm mid-morning sun on his face and the hope that he would meet someone who would let him use their phone. "'Here, buddy, get yourself something to eat,' the young gentleman said, touching his shoulder to get his attention while handing him a $10 bill. "'Thank you, but I'm not homeless,' Tom answered, barely able to speak. "'I'm Senator Tom Bateman.' "'Well, the next time you see the president, tell him I said hello,' he laughed as he walked away, leaving the ten in his hand. Tom stumbled around the park and surrounding streets for hours, his rest breaks becoming more and more frequent and closer together until finally he was unable to continue. His heart sank when he realized he was sitting on the same bench he had woken up on. He had asked countless people for help, begged them. He could not believe that nobody he met recognized him. Nobody wanted to be bothered. How could so many people be so heartless? As the sun set, there were fewer people passing by. In the last fading rays of sunlight, a dreaded and familiar silhouette approached. Tom broke into sobs but was too exhausted to run. He resigned to his fate. If she was going to kill him, he hoped she would just get it over with. Hello, Tommy. Bad boy making me chase you down. Why are you doing this to me? He mumbled through his bleeding lips his mouth and throat swollen with infected sores. What have I ever done to you? Don't tell me. You have forgotten your life's work already. You're Bateman Buster. He knew by the look on her face that his failure to understand angered her. In a breath, she was nose to nose with him. Her hand clutched his throat, pulling him off the bench by his neck. Do you know how long it took my mother to die when she could no longer afford to go to the doctor? Tom's face was red as a tomato, tears streaking down his cheeks. Three weeks, Senator Bateman. My mother suffered for three weeks, refusing to go to the doctor because there was no help for her and she could not pay. No mercy. Your Bateman buster saw to that. It is your fault she suffered. You know her pain now, the pain you caused. I gave you a day of suffering for a week of hers. You should be thankful I was so kind." "'I'm sorry,' he pleaded, his words barely recognizable. "'I can make things right.' "'No, you had your chance. You chose your path.' Tom Bateman fell back against the bench, released from her hold but not her clutches. With wide eyes, he watched her take a mysterious object from the pocket of her skirt. It was a small, handmade doll, its body fashioned from his silk pocket square. Pins and needles protruded from its round belly, 
filling its drawn mouth, braying threads dangling from its head. His perfectly angelic demon cracked another crooked smile, and Tom felt his blood run cold. She grabbed the doll by the head and twisted its body in the opposite direction, back and forth. Tom's neck snapped, and he collapsed into a heap on the bench, his eyes staring blankly ahead as she disappeared into the dark. If you'd like to support the show, you can become a monthly patron for as little as $1 per month and get exclusive patron-only content for as little as $5 per month, including numerous episodes you can't find anywhere else online. Learn more by clicking the link in the show notes or visit WeirdDarkness.com and click on Become a Patron. Another way to show your support is to share a link directly to this episode on Facebook, Twitter, Reddit, and other social media and ask your friends to subscribe to the podcast as well and leave a rating and review. If you subscribe and leave a review, I'll be sure to give you a shout-out in a future episode. Mamalo777 from the USA left a review saying, I listen to this show all the time. Great stories, and Darren has a great voice. All of the stories are spooky. I especially like the black-eyed kid slash people stories. Great podcast for those who like weird and creepy stories. Keep up the great work, Darren. Ms. Scarlet said, I spent days searching for a paranormal podcast with unique stories I hadn't already heard, and this is it. I've been listening for about two weeks now, and I'm addicted. Keep up the good work, man. And Mother Bean said, I really enjoyed listening to these podcasts. I'm considering becoming a patron so that I can hear everything. Thanks to everybody who has subscribed and left reviews. I really appreciate it. Do you have a dark tale to tell? You can share your story at WeirdDarkness.com and I might use it in a future episode. The following stories from this episode are purported to be true. UFO in My Front Yard was written by Blake Lacey and was submitted directly to WeirdDarkness.com. Haunted Fiddletown by paranormal investigator Paul Dale Roberts was posted at MyHauntedLife2.com. This Man Kept Calling His Loved Ones, Even Though He'd Been Dead For Hours, was written by Aaron McCann for Ranker.com. The Deathly Stoop Chair of Thomas Busby was posted at the Haunted Palace blog. And this episode's dark chapter, Pins and Needles, was written by Faith Marlowe from the book Black Magic, a women of urban fantasy production available on Kindle. You can find links in the show notes. Music in this episode is by Midnight Syndicate from the project Vampire Symphonies from the Crypt. You can download the entire album right now for yourself by clicking the link in the show notes. If you like news, politics, and laughs, be sure to subscribe to my other podcast at DailyDoseOfWeirdNews.com. I'm your creator and host, Darren Marlar. Thanks for joining me in the Weird Darkness. Weird Darkness